with the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Brian German. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for checking out the Agnet News Hour today. I'm your host, Brian German. It's a busy week this week with the Calusa Farm Show, AgSafe's annual conference, Activate 23, and the California Plant and Soil Conference all taking place at the same time. Stay tuned for interviews and information from those events a little later on in the week. But with today's top story, here's Danielle Leal. Six of seven states agree on the Colorado water management. Six states that rely on water from the Colorado River Basin recently reached an agreement regarding a model to drastically cut water use in the basin. Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Arizona, and Nevada, quote, did exactly what we needed, according to Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. However, the agreement doesn't include California, the largest water user from the basin, which plans to release its own water use plan. In a letter to the Bureau of Reclamation, the six states admitted, quote, over the past 20-plus years, there is simply far less water flowing into the Colorado River system than the amount that leaves it and that we have effectively run out of storage to deplete. The state asked the Bureau of Reclamation to review their proposal as it seeks drought mitigation guidelines. Bennett says California not joining the effort was disappointing, adding, quote, For far too long, the other six states, and particularly the Upper Basin, have carried the burden of this historic drought. NAFB contributed to that report. Thanks, Danielle. And in other water-related news, improved water conditions in California doesn't necessarily mean that the drought is over. Director of the California Department of Water Resources, Carla Nemeth, stressed the importance of the next few months and how water supplies will look going into summer. Does our big January actually bust the drought in California? It's too soon to tell, and we need to take the lessons of the most recent couple of years in which we've seen runoff conditions drop off dramatically, and which we've seen storm conditions shut down during what we traditionally know as the wettest periods in California. So I don't want to be the downer here, (laughs) but I do want to make sure that everyone understands that we need to exercise caution. This is a fantastic way to be starting our winter couldn't have asked for anything better, but there's a lot more that needs to play out over the course of the next several months for us to really capture our full water supply picture here in California. And in other news, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, California tomato processors will be in for a good year in 2023. In the latest California Processing Tomato Report from USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service, California's tomato processors reported they have or will have contracts for 12.4 million tons in 2023. The number represents an increase of 18% compared to the 10.5 million contracted tons forecasted in the August 2022 report. Processors are estimating that contracted production for 2023 will come from 248,000 acres, generating an average yield of 50 tons per acre. The contracted planted acreage forecast is 8% higher than the 2022 acreage of 229,000 that was reported under contract in August. The early processing tomato estimate is funded by the California League of Food Producers. And here's Danielle Leal once again with some information on an upcoming Farm Bill listening session that will be held in California. The World Egg Expo to host a Farm Bill listening session. Amidst the rumble of the tractor engines and the hustle and bustle of business deals being made at the 2023 World Egg Expo will be a U.S. House Committee on Agriculture 2023 Farm Bill listening session. Every five years, a new Farm Bill is crafted 
and policymakers are currently in the process of drafting the 2023 Farm Bill. Through that process, listening sessions are done to gather feedback from farmers, ranchers, and other stakeholders on priority for the legislation. So far, two speakers have RSVP'd, including House Agriculture Committee Chairman Glenn G.T. Thompson of Pennsylvania and California Representative David Valadeo. Any additional bipartisan members of Congress are said to be announced at a later date. This listening session will take place on the opening day of the World Egg Expo, Tuesday, February 14th. If you're interested in attending the show and the listening session, you can use code AGNET to get $3 off your ticket purchase online. Visit WorldEggExpo.com to map your show and for the latest details on the event. Reporting for Agnet West Radio Network, I'm Danielle Leal. This is the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at fels.net. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. In today's National Spotlight. First, it was a competition issue, but recently foreign ownership of U.S. farmland, especially by China, has become a U.S. national security issue. Just last week, that Chinese spy balloon spotted over Montana and a U.S. Air Force warning that proposed Chinese land buys in North Dakota are too close to a military drone testing facility. Iowa Senator Chuck Rassley targeted the issue in telling farm reporters about his bill to include USDA in the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. CFIUS made a decision that they didn't have any uh, authority to stop China from buying farmland uh, in uh, North Dakota, which seems to be very close to some of our military facilities. Now, I'm not saying that I know for sure there's a connection to our national security and Chinese buying that farmland. But the Washington Post reports Air Force Assistant Secretary Andrew Hunter wrote North Dakota senators the proposed corn milling site, quote, presents a significant threat to national security, citing impacts to military operations in the area. In other news, House Agriculture Chairman Glenn G.T. Thompson recently announced subcommittee chairs and jurisdictions for the 118th Congress. The Pennsylvania Republican says of the subcommittee chairs, their expertise and partnership are essential to fulfilling this committee's mandate of delivering certainty and prosperity to American agriculture and its entire value chain. Representative Austin Scott of Georgia will serve as the vice chair of the full committee and chair of the General Farm Commodities, Risk Management, and Credit Subcommittee. California's Doug LaMalfa will chair the subcommittee on forestry, and Indiana's Jim Baird is the chair of the subcommittee on conservation, research, and biotechnology. Meanwhile, Minnesota's Brad Finstad was appointed chair of the subcommittee on nutrition, foreign agriculture, and horticulture, and Tracy Mann of Kansas was appointed chair of the livestock subcommittee, South Dakota's Dusty Johnson, chair of the subcommittee on commodity markets, digital assets, and rural development. I spent last week at the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA trade show in New Orleans. One of the booths I stopped by was John Deere, where I learned about one of their newest offerings. Here is that interview. First off, tell me your name and then tell me what we've got behind us. Sure, I'm John Doyle. I 
uh, am the uh, business manager for the uh, implement and attachment uh, portfolio that we have for Frontier and uh, some of our John Deere branded implements. All right, and what do we have behind us here? What we have here is our new 2023 uh, 5075E or our 5E3 cylinder uh, lineup of tractors. Uh, we made, had an update to these tractors and, and really added some, some really nice features that a lot of customers are going to really like. Uh, and some of those features include we have an updated cab here, more of a premium cab offering uh, for this line of, of tractors. Um, you know, buddy seat, you get the sunroof. Uh, there's electronic uh, hitch control, quick raise and quick lower that we've added to it. So uh, a lot of nice, nice features there. Another thing uh, that we've added is the ability to install a third uh, mid valve so you can uh, operate the uh, hydraulically operated implements on front of the loader like we have this bale hugger here. So uh, a lot of great features that were added to this, this tractor. Tell me, who is this tractor ideal for? So, so these tractors are, are our east uh, lineup of tractors. Really, these tractors are really targeted at uh, really anyone could own one of these tractors. But really, you're probably your more uh, rural lifestyleist kind of customer. Maybe a small cow calf operation. Somebody wants to bale a little hay. Uh, you know, you know doesn't have all. It has really nice bells and whistles, but it doesn't have you know the the a lot of the premium stuff that you have on a lot of bigger bigger okay. tractors so it's more of a user-friendly type tractor all right and you do have upgrades if they wanted to go you do have bigger. a lot of a lot of options and more bells and whistles that's right. right thanks for your time enjoy sure. yourself out here at the show thank you and if you'd like to see some video of that tractor head to our website at agnetwest.com that's today's national spotlight i'm sabrina halverson for agnet west thanks sabrina and now here's randall wiseman with today's livestock report well, in today's Livestock News, last week the U.S. did announce it is seeking a second dispute resolution panel under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. It's in order to challenge Canada's dairy tariff rate quota allocation policy. With more details about that, here's Rod Bain. A second dispute settlement panel has been requested by the U.S. to resolve issues with Canada's dairy tariff rate quotas within the framework of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai said our country is challenging Canada's revised TRQ allocation measure for dairy, measures that impose new conditions prohibiting the U.S. from utilizing these allocations for exports. This latest resolution request comes over a year after a USMCA panel cited with our nation's challenge of Canadian dairy TRQ allocations, as explained by Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack at the time. I think we were essentially saying you've got to go beyond the traditional processors. You've got to provide us more market opportunity here. The secretary reiterated via press release that desire for greater U.S. dairy export opportunity into Canada through that nation honoring USMCA commitments. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Rod. And the National Milk Producers Federation and U.S. Dairy Export Council commended the announcement that they are formally advancing that USMCA dispute settlement proceeding. Canada's unwillingness to abide by the tariff rate quota provisions of USMCA has been an issue since the agreement's implementation began. The U.S. won its first dispute panel back in December of 2021. In that one, Canada was found reserving most of its preferential dairy TRQs for Canadian processors that have little incentive to import product. Canada's revised approach to USMCA TRQs released back in May also provided inequitable advantages to Canadian processors. Now, if the panel ultimately confirms that Canada has been violating its obligations under USMCA, 
the U.S. would be granted the right to impose retaliatory duties should Canada fail to fix its unfair TRQ administrative practices. Uh, Last week, the Cattle Facts Outlook Seminar during the annual cattle industry convention in New Orleans dug into expert market and weather analysis for the coming year. Prices and profitability will again favor cattle producers in 2023, according to Cattle Facts. They note the industry came into the year with the smallest cattle supply since 2015, as drought caused the industry to dig deeper into the supply of feeder cattle and calves. And while drought relief is up in the air, improvements are also expected to translate to moderating feed costs, especially in the second half of this year. Combined with the increased cattle prices, producers, especially the cow-calf operators, will continue to see improvement in margins over the next several years. According to Kevin Good, Vice President of Industry Relations for Cattle Facts, U.S. beef cow-calf inventories are down 1.5 million ahead from cycle highs. He said drought improvement and higher cattle prices should slow beef cow culling throughout this year. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. We'll be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Today's show is sponsored by the makers of All Grow Compost. It's the perfect amendment for improving your soil's water holding capacity. You can contact your soil health specialist, Tom Fantosi, at 209-312-4016. Sinagro, your partner for a cleaner, greener world. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German. Agnet West Danielle Leal recently had the opportunity to speak with Don Stokel, Produce Safety Alliance Extension Associate with Cornell University. Again, I thank you for taking the time to chat with me today all about just what you mentioned there, produce safety. Um, so right off the bat, I would just kind of like to know a little bit more about what the Produce Safety Alliance is. So can you give me a brief overview, a Cliff Notes version, if you will, and, uh, um, and then we'll get into the topic of the day. Sure, I'd love to. So the the program that I'm a part of at Cornell started more or less with good agricultural practices. Cornell had the National Good Agricultural Practices Program of quite a while before FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, came around. So it was logical that um, Cornell would be a a a reasonable house, a reasonable location, or a reasonable home for the Produce Safety Alliance when um, when FDA and USDA needed a collaborator to do outreach in support of FSMA produce safety rule, which as all of your readers know, was passed in 2015. So the Produce Safety Alliance supports education and outreach with the goal to help small and medium-sized growers in particular, but all covered growers understand and comply with produce safety rule requirements which are based on good agricultural practices to reduce risk to produce safety. That's right. So um, you kind of mentioned what we're going to talk about today, and that's all about the produce safety rules. So go ahead again and, and tell me when it was created, why it was created, and, and what that rule is, and then we'll get into what, you know how it could be different for other growers. Sure. I'm going to back up even further and, and, and just mention that FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, was a long due overhaul of the food safety system in the United mm-hmm. States. And it covers farm to fork. And starting with the farm, you have the produce safety rule. So produce safety rule was passed in 2015 and it shifts the focus 
of food safety efforts from a reactive system to a proactive mm -hmm. system. In other words, those those good agricultural practices that are embodied and and underlie many of the regulations are meant to stop fecal contamination from getting onto produce. Fecal contamination is the most common source of pathogens that lead to foodborne illness that can be traced back to the farm. So, so the produce safety rule was was enacted in 2015. It became effective in 2016. And and uh, I think an important thing to know is that is that enforcement didn't actually begin in two thousand until 2019. Why that's important is that everybody is trying to work to understand the produce safety rule because it's new to all mm -hmm. of us. And that's that's why these conversations, this education and outreach, um, continued communications with FDA and stakeholders are so important to understanding how to enact and how to comply with the PSR. Got it. Now, you know, you and I actually before we started recording, you mentioned that you're not necessarily from California, but you're here now. And so you should know now that the state of California, gosh, we produce so many different types of commodities. And so, as you mentioned earlier, uh, this produce safety rule is going to be different for each and every grower as each and every commodity is different and it has its own requirements and, and specifications and, and whatnot. So um, today, I would like to focus on our nut growers. Uh, you had an mm -hmm. opportunity to speak at a, a pistachio day just a couple weeks ago and uh, I was there and I was listening in and so that got me excited about uh, the the conversation that you were having there with our, our nut growers across the state. And so um, not necessarily specific to pistachio growers, but specific to all nut, the whole nut industry in, in general, are there risks mm -hmm. with produce safety when it comes to pistachios, almonds, walnuts, and, and nuts of, that are grown here in California? Yeah, well, that's a that's a that's a great segue because one thing I didn't mention about the produce safety rule is, that in addition to that um, that proactive stance and and looking to prevent contamination instead of address contamination, there's also what they refer to as a systems approach, and the rule. Well, you can just imagine because we all know that California grows so many mm -hmm. different types of fruits and vegetables and nuts that um, every one of them has a different set of conditions under which the, the the crop is grown. So the produce safety rule is written to be very um, flexible. It uses words like as necessary, when appropriate. And what that means to our to our uh, to to your readers is that every commodity is, is going to have slightly different ways of addressing in a systems-based approach what is acceptable, what is necessary, what is appropriate. So specific so when we talk about the systems approach, I think it's important to emphasize that we're looking for a source of a pathogen, a source of the hazard, and produce safety rule deals only with pathogens. It doesn't deal with chemical risks. We're looking for the source of the pathogen, which is usually fecal contamination. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is two things. One, keep fecal contamination off of the product during production and during processing. And if there is any fecal contamination that accidentally gets into the system, keep it from spreading and making a small problem become a much larger problem. So when it comes to nuts, the fact that they're mechanically harvested 
the fact that for pistachios and walnuts, there is a substantial amount of water used in post-harvest in direct contact, which could spread any contamination that, that was harvested along with the, with the nuts, are, are two maybe commodity-oriented risk factors. But then you also have a few things in favor, such as the tendency of, uh, for walnuts anyway, the tendency to have a, a tight shell around the kernel, and then the, the drying and roasting processes that are pretty prevalent in the system that sometimes reduce the risks. This is the AgNet News Hour, and I'm your host, Brian German. We'll be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Brian German. For today's interview segment, we've got another portion of the latest episode of the Voices of the Valley podcast. The episode features a conversation with Stuart Wolf president and CEO of Wolf Farming and Processing. Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Voices of the Valley. This is uh, Dennis Donahue, and I get the uh, pleasure of being the director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology. And I'm joined by my uh, good friend, as always, Candace Wilson. Candace? Hi, Dennis. How are you today? Good, thank you. And, and you know, one of the things, uh, we got some feedback from one of our guests, and they said, could Candace tell us a little bit about herself? So I always get to say I'm the uh, director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology. You need to lay down a marker. People want to know about you. You know what? So I'm not just your your good friend. <laughs> you true. are more than my good friend. But, <laughs> but seemingly you have other roles and responsibilities. You have other things. That's true. That's true. Well, just as you're proud to be the innovation director, I am the regional director for the Western Business at the Farmers Business Network. So FBN um, has been developing an e-commerce platform for all grower inputs. So We call ourselves a late stage startup, but we're talking about a company who has grown significantly in the last eight years. We sell all crop protection products, seed. What else? It's a fabulous place to be working. It's exciting. It's this amazing culture of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and people who've worked in ag their whole careers and stuff. So you are getting a fast and furious sort of environment. And when the business is growing really fast, then, you know, processes aren't keeping up with growth. So there's plenty of little hurdles throughout the day as well. All right. Well, that sounds good. Well, we're going to keep, as we keep doing our episodes, we'll keep introducing you further to our audience. So, there you go. Okay. Anyway, I can do that. And now we get to introduce somebody else who's a great friend of Western Growers. In fact, he's on the board and uh, is known for Besides what we're going to hear about in terms of his business activities, he's a great host of uh, our annual Ag Sharks and noted for a uh, keen insight and a great sense of humor. So with all of that, let's uh, bring on uh, Stuart Wolf, who is the president and CEO of uh, Wolf Farming. And Stuart, thanks for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we were excited about this one. Like I said, alluding to your, you know, how personable you are and how much everyone enjoys your uh, appearance each year at the annual meeting, I thought, 
Stuart's going to be a great guest. And uh, so we're excited to have you. And, and typically what we like to do and is just have our guests start with what you're currently doing and, and a little bit about your background in terms of how you got there. And then, uh, and then we'd like to know about wolf farming and uh, the nature of the operation. So anyway, I was born and raised in uh, Fresno. Actually, I was born up until the time I was about three and a half. I lived in a little town called Huron with my family. And then uh, we moved into Fresno, mom and dad and six kids. And anyway, my father worked for a guy named Russell Giffen, who was a pioneer out on the West Side and really made his mark. He started kind of with nothing and built a really a sizable, well-known operation known as Giffen Inc., and after about 35 years of doing that, and at age 57, in 1974, my mom and dad started Wolf Farming Company. Giffen had sold all the property and they decided to start up, which I'm still, I find it remarkable at age 57, right. you would go uh, take your savings and put it into farmland in Western Fresno County. I don't know that I would do the same today, but uh, anyway, they did. And we're in a federal water district and the property was broken up and ownership was. So I ended up with 160 acres when I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I spent a lot of summers working out there. And I thought, I will never do this the rest of my life. Uh, I ended up going to a boarding school, went to Berkeley, ended up at Boston College. And I was graduating in 1986. There was a lot of activity with leverage buyouts and all this stuff. KKR just did the, the RJR Nabisco deal. Everybody in business school thought, we got to go to New York. That's where the action is. So I was kind of poking around thinking, I'm going to stay on the East Coast for a while. And on my graduation, my dad came out and really spoke to me about his kind of love and passion of farming. And I had this opportunity and he just thought it'd be a mistake not to come out and give it a go. And once I did, I, like all of my farming friends, just fell in love with it, you know, and I couldn't get it out of my blood. And so anyway, I took right to it. And one thing led to another. And out of six kids, my family asked me to kind of step up. So it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's elaborate on that. What's your fault? Talk about wolf farming and what you do and the, and the various products you're associated with. Well, so coming out of school, my father was very growth oriented and naturally being a, a young guy and I recently married and, you know, it's easy to get in trouble trying to grow too fast. And so I managed to do that on more than one occasion. So Wolf Farming Company, we farm about 30,000 acres, most of which we own. And then we've vertically integrated into a couple processing plants. We really like growing processing tomatoes. And so we built a tomato facility back in about 1990, in the middle of Fresno County, the most productive tomato growing region of the world. And then we built an almond processing plant, actually the year before that, got together with a partner, John Harris, and built a facility. And, you know, we had no idea that the almond thing would have the kind of run-up that it did over the several decades. And so we've grown both those businesses and our farming operations but Dennis and Candace, as you well know, when you're growing one of these farming businesses, it takes a lot of capital. You get kind of thinned out on your working capital. And all you have to have is kind of a downturn in a market here and there. And then it's your fault. <laughs> so. <laughs> Today, compared to what the farm looked like in 1986, here we are, 2023 now. Well, how has the farm evolved in terms of the crops that you're working on, some of the new technologies, you know? What are some of the strides that the farm has made over the last, how many years is that? 40? Well, let me back up and just say one thing my dad did, which I thought was really in retrospect, 
was just kind of genius, but it, you know, he looked at the crops that were predominantly being grown out there, like in the mid seventies. And, you know, it was a lot of cotton, grain, melons, this kind of thing. And he thought, you know, I don't want to be beholden to like farm programs and support payments and all that. So he really started to focus on crops that were unique to California, like almonds, pistachios, where we had global competitive advantage. And so, you know, you can grow most anything here in California. He narrowed it down to a handful of items that turn out to be highly mechanized that are, again, we have global advantage. We enjoyed a better return per acre foot on those crops. Early on, my dad was figuring out which crops generated the best returns based on the limiting factor of water. By the time I showed up in about 86, the farm had grown to about 12,000 acres. And then when I came along, we started developing more almonds. We made that kind of a strategic, you know, we're going to increase that. We're going to get in the almond processing business. And then my dad, who always had an interest in like building a tomato facility, this is kind of crazy, but you know, the Apple Macintosh, the computer came out in 84 and I got one for college. So when I came back to the ranch, I actually had Microsoft MultiPlan, you know, before Excel. So I could run like all these forward looking projections and change the, you know, do sensitivity analysis and everything. So my timing and luck at this thing was just great. So because I was doing a lot of that, then I usually joined my father in talking to investors or the bank and spoke to, you know, the business and, you know, all these different, you know, what happens if tomato solids decrease or the price of tomatoes go up or whatever. I could speak to all that basis, the, my modeling with my computer. So, <laughs> but we, I had a really good long run with my dad. This is the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. Farm employers' labor service compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You're listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. I'm your host, Brian German, and we've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. The USDA is taking steps to improve child health through school meals. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack announced major initiatives that support and enhance the health of America's children through nutritious school meals. At the USDA Conversation on Healthy School Meals Roundtable, Vilsack said, quote, Our commitment to the school meal programs comes from a common goal we all share, keeping kids healthy and helping them reach their full potential. USDA supports efforts to enhance the health and quality of life of America's children by proposing gradual updates to science-based nutrition standards in school meals and assisting small and rural school districts in improving the nutrition quality of school meals. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And in other news, the U.S. Department of Agriculture reminds farmers and livestock producers of the assistance available to help recover from recent floods. Producers who experience livestock deaths may be eligible for the Livestock Indemnity Program. Producers will need to provide documentation and submit a notice of loss to their local farm service agency office within 30 days of when the loss is apparent. The Emergency Assistance for Livestock Honeybees and Farm-Raised Fish Program can also provide compensation for feed and grazing losses. 
Orchardists and nursery tree growers may also be eligible for cost-share assistance through the Tree Assistance Program to replant or rehabilitate eligible trees, bushes, or vines that were lost. FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau recently met with disaster-impacted producers in California, where he highlighted the extensive portfolio of disaster assistance programs and services that are available and encourages impacted producers to get in touch with their local USDA service center. And to finish out today's program, here's Danielle Leal. Nominations welcome for the California Leopold Conservation Award. The California Leopold Conservation Award recognizes landowners who inspire others through their dedication to land, water, and wildlife habitat management on their private or working lands. Nomination for the awards are now being taken. Ashley Bourne, CEO of Sustainable Conservation, a co-sponsor of the award, said, quote, As we deal with the intense fallout of the state's recent storms and the toll on our communities, our collective conservation ethic must guide how we build a climate-resilient future for our state. She added, California landowners are on the front lines of environmental stewardship. The Leopold Conservation Award celebrates these inspiring individuals and families, and we hope farmers and ranchers and other private landowners come forward this year to be recognized. California farmers, ranchers, or forest landowners who go above and beyond to improve soil health, water quality, and wildlife habitat on their working lands can win a $10,000 award. The application deadline is July 18th of this year. You can email applications to award at Sand County Foundation. Org. Reporting for Agnet West, I'm Danielle Leal. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.